Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with stakeholders worldwide to solve the problems that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis, or AI Arthritis for short. And my name is Tiffany Westrich-Robertson. I'm the CEO of the organization and also a person living with AI arthritis diseases, primarily non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis. Whew, I ran out of breath a little bit. <laughs> saying that, but I am here, but I am not alone. This is a very, very, very special edition of our talk show. I am proud to say that I am sitting here with four lovely people and they're going to introduce themselves right now. So first, I'm going to have the two regular repeating co-hosts, patient co-hosts that we've had on the show before. You know them, you love them. Let's start with Miss Deb. Hey, everybody. I am Deb Constein. I am in the Madison, Wisconsin area. I was diagnosed with RA at the young age of 13, and I am happy to be back. We're happy you're back, too. <laughs> All right. Now let's go over to Miss Patrice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to ULAR 2021. My name is Patrice Johnson. I live in Northern California, and I was diagnosed with RA 10 years ago, and I'm happy to say this is my second virtual ULAR. Woo! That's Woo right. And for those of you who are listening to this as the podcast audio version that airs, there is another uncut version that will be on YouTube of all of us on video. So you can see that Patrice has the Eiffel Tower in the back because it was supposed to be in Paris. So, <laughs> so that's why. All right. But we're only halfway there. We've got two more. So I'm going to welcome for the first time to the show, one, somebody who has started at our organization, um, employed. And we love her, Miss Katie. Hi, Katie. Hey, I'm so happy to be here. Uh, so excited to be attending my first ULAR. I wish I was in Paris, but I also have a lovely uh, Paris-esque background. And I was also diagnosed with RA about 19 years ago. But today I am coming to you from uh, Metro Detroit, Michigan. So Wonderful. Happy to be here. Awesome. <laughs> and last but certainly not least, we have Leslie. Hey, Leslie. Hi, everyone. I'm Leslie Rotwell-Bacher. I am also coming to you from the Metro Detroit area. I was diagnosed with lupus and RA in 2008 at the age of 22, and I have been blogging about chronic illness since a week after I was diagnosed. Wonderful. And I, I had the opportunity to meet you at the American College of Rheumatology Scientific Convention I can't pinpoint the year. It was either 15 or 16, I think, but I've been a fan following you for quite a while. So this is the first time though we've had you on the show as well. We're excited to, to have you, but it's not just about the show. Patrice sort of gave you a little insider scoop on what it's about. We are at ULAR 2021. Woo! Tune in from our computers and our <laughs> in our homes. So, what is ULAR Congress anyway? You might be asking. Well, first of all, there's a name change. So, when we've introduced this in the past, we've said ULAR. We've said a different acronym, but they are all about bringing their mission and the work that they do forward into our, an alliance, a collaboration. And with that, they wanted to change their acronym. So now when we say ULAR, we're talking about the European Alliance of Associations for Rheumatology. I actually had to look at my piece of paper because I'm so used to saying the other acronym. I didn't want to mess that one up. Uh, it's hard to break that one. It is. <laughs> It's like, Deb, if you told me to start calling you Julie, like, what? <laughs> it wouldn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's just yeah. when you're used to something, you're, you're used to something. 100%. 
Patrice was with us last year and we're happy to have her back. And Deb and I have been attending this for the last, this is our fourth, I believe. Yes. Because there's been the second virtual because I was like, wait, it's three. But yeah, I'm not forgetting last year. (laughs) Right, right. And so one of the things that I wanted to preface by this is we invited Leslie and then we got to give a shout out to Eileen. Eileen Davidson, you might know her as Chronic mm-hmm. Eileen. Shout out. She is also on our go to ULAR team 2021. She wasn't able to be on the debrief today, but she will be in future debriefs that you will see on, on our YouTube channel. And this is the second year we've done this go to ULAR. And Patrice was the one who we, we brought with us last year. We've expanded the team in 2021. And this is a program, a pilot program in its last phase that we're doing as the mission of our organization to help all patients have a voice. And it's not fair that just we get to be at the table. We want all voices to be at the table. And so we offered passes and to come along with us so that we can give more people living with our diseases opportunities to experience the conference and really get a behind the scenes action of how we navigate the conference and and be there for questions and learning experiences like this. So we're again, just super, super thrilled to have everybody coming with us. And if you are interested, we'll give you some information about how you can get involved with that at the end of the show. So let's get rolling here. We've been at, how long have we been here? It seems like a week, but how long? Day and a half. Or, you know, we did have pre-work, so we probably started last week. So, well, that's that true. In. That's yeah. true. And and then we did have a little bit of issue getting actually in to. Um, <laughs> so that's for a whole other story. <laughs> but I started. I I was able to get most of you, uh, most of the the others in. I I took the last the last role um, getting in there. Um, but finally, I was a. So I've been in a, probably about twenty four hours, but. <laughs> But seen a lot, seen a lot since then. Um, I was going to ask some of you, uh, there are different themes that we've seen emerging. And I thought um, if anyone wants to jump in and and give us some examples of that. Well, definitely collaboration. And that's something that, you know, I was kind of warned ahead of time that that would be, that would be a thing. And it definitely is that I've seen so far. And I think that that's, that's really awesome and it's definitely unique. So I, I like that and I'm, I'll be watching for it as the conference goes on. Absolutely. And just to piggyback on that, one of the things that's really cool about ULAR and not saying that the American College of Rheumatology, love ya, love ya, not saying anything. <laughs> Equal. Don't keep us out. Don't blackball us. <laughs> But it's not that conference, that that scientific congress is not as patient friendly as the ULAR ones. And in particular, ULAR has a full pillar. They have three pillars. And one is for the researchers, one's for the health professionals, the rheumatologists, and then you've got the patient. It's an actual third equal pillar. And I even noticed in the plenary, which is the opening, what we're going to talk about here next after these, these main themes is there was a part where they were talking about this, this collaboration and these alliances that are most important to them. And they gave the floor to one of each stakeholder group. And the president started by saying, um, well, we're going to turn over the floor to the most important person here at the table. And he gave it to the patient. And that was Elsa. We know Elsa too. Hey, Elsa. <laughs> so shout out yeah. to Elsa from, from ULAR Paré. So many friends. Is what that, it is. It's really obvious as a person who goes to these different conferences that you can tell. Just there, there is a, there is a, a welcoming and we, we really appreciate that. So what else? Who wants to throw out another one of these emerging themes? Well, I think inflammation is a big one, and inflammation can be stretched out in so many ways. There are two sessions that I saw on RA with dementia, and obviously, as you brought up yesterday, Tiff, was that the endpoint of, <laughs> you know, inflammation is that can be, that's the whole piece that goes right along right. with that. So. Right. And something that our organization, like many nonprofits, we have a committee that has different stakeholder groups. We meet at the end of the year, a couple of times during the year. And just to make sure we're all you know, learning what's important to the other stakeholder groups. And in the 2020 end of the year, one of our pharmaceutical collaborators mentioned that they are starting to focus on inflammation as the umbrella 
which was very in keeping with what we were seeing emerge here. Before, I think in these meetings, we we definitely talk about inflammation, but it's more of a symptom or a piece of a disease. But this time it was led with inflammation and then how the inflammation impacts different diseases and comorbidities and multi-morbidities, which we'll get into on what that means here in a minute. <laughs> but all of these other, uh, it leads to so many other things, organ involvement and all the way to depression, fatigue, et cetera. Those are the main ones. Did I miss any? I'm sure I'll think of one tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> There was an emerging theme last year as well, that they keep talking about your environment while you have these diseases. And last year, I can't remember how many videos we watched, they said about the smoking and how when you have these diseases, it just makes things even worse. And also your diet, which is salt and sugar and oh yeah, they went really big on the sodas. I don't. I gave up sodas a long time ago. Uh, but, uh, yeah. Um, so I think that's really great. And I think there's a session, I don't think it's today. I think it's either tomorrow or on Saturday about you are what you eat. And so I can't wait to see that one. Yeah, for sure. And Deb, by the way, is a licensed dietitian. So this is very much in her, in her wheelhouse and we'll be excited to hear some in-depth reporting back to from Deb on that. And you made me think of another one that we'll hear a little bit more from Leslie and Deb here in a few minutes on remission. That came up for the first time in ULAR 2020. And we did a lot. We did these video debriefs. We have probably 10 or 12. So they're on our YouTube channel. We'll make sure everybody um, has links to them. But we specific, that one was a really good episode, the debrief, because it was the first time we heard about you know remission. And, and I, I was quoted of going, because I literally couldn't believe that we were there. I mean, we as people living with diseases, I never thought I could be off of a treatment. Now, can I? I don't know. We can get into to the more of the logistics. But I know, Leslie, you sent a text that you saw that and kind of had the same reaction, right? Yeah, I, w- I was pretty mind blown because I think as patients, we know about it and we think about it. And I think doctors kind of less so. So I was I was really impressed to to hear yeah. that. So that was, that. I, I have to say, and we said it last time, that was the first of these research conferences that we've been going to ACR for almost a decade. And so to really see that was just amazing to us that that's the direction that research is going. Really looking forward to hearing more about that as we progress in this conference and the future conferences. So let's jump in. Let's jump into the reviews of, not really reviews, overviews. I shouldn't, we're not sitting here going like, I give that a 10 out of 10 or whatever. It's just, <laughs> I it, we're, we're giving a, a debrief, a, a summary. So that was a poor choice of words. But the first one was called help. What do I need to cope with my RMD or rheumatic disease? I know Patrice and I attended that and and wrote some notes and some of the others here did not attend it, but can still be part of it because as we like to do in these debriefs, it's not just about disseminating or filtering information and facts back to you. It's how is it relevant to us? Why do you care <laughs> that we're learning this, this information? And since everybody in this conversation at the table has the diseases, it's okay. We can't all be at everything. But it's just like you all listening can't, couldn't be there. But we're trying to bring that to you. And then let's talk about how it's, how it's relevant. Patrice, did you want to start off by just giving kind of an intro? I, and we're only going to talk about two. There were four total, but we're going to talk about the first one and we're going to talk about the one with the exercise. So uh, if you just want to give a quick overview while I pull this up. A uh, session was titled, What My Newly Diagnosed Patient Should Know About Disease, Its Risk Factors. And this gentleman, um, I cannot pronounce his last name, but uh, we'll call him Zoltan. That was his first name. That'll work. <laughs> so he was saying that they are now looking at some new AIMS. Of course, I'm not sure what he means by AIMS uh, in RMD, such as cure, prevention. Well, I do, but go ahead. I'll fill Okay, <laughs> remission, as we just mentioned. And then uh, function, workability, quality of life. And then eventually predictions and outcomes. And then he went into several phases of arthritis. um, And that was just 
he, he really expanded on that. So for time, I will just, you know, about pre-arthritis, five to 10 years before, and then during your whole journey. So they, it was just very, very interesting. And then he went into gymnastics and then environment, like I was talking before. Mm-hmm. And also just a real quick fun fact. Um, I did not know Renoir, the great painter, had, well, they didn't call it rheumatoid arthritis back then. They right. just called it arthritis, but just a fun factor. Yeah. Yeah, that that is. I'll build from that. So thanks for that wonderful introduction, Patrice. And I wanted to point out a few of the words that you said. And the aims and the treatment are like the target. So that's where research is starting to focus on. And it goes back to what we just said about remission. Because 10 years ago, the whole focus was on treat to target. And prior to about a decade plus, there was a pyramid model of treatment. And it started with diet and exercise. And you try all of these things before you do treatment. And then there was this aha moment where everybody said, you know what, let's flip that and let's start treating the target with, with getting patients connected to treatments early. Well, the result of the treat to target research is what we're seeing in remission. That's why we can test remission because they're testing the patients that were treat to target and finding that indeed it works. Those are the people that are experiencing remission. So there's a whole episode on that again. I'll link you all to on YouTube that we talk in more depth about it, but it leads to this. So the new aims that they're talking about, and let's preface the topic of this is, is she mentioned is what do you teach patients, you meaning doctors who are, have these early diseases, what do they need to know about? What things do they need to know about? So I made a little side note, like I love my roomie, Al. Hey, Al, because Dr. Al Kim or Dr. Kim, Dr. Al Kim, or just Al. If you've listened to the show, it's one of the other. I actually have an appointment with good old Al on Monday. But one of the things that, you know, I love him, but I don't think we've ever talked about some of this stuff. So I don't think the onus is really on the on the doctor, I guess is what I'm saying to to necessarily do this. But cure, prevention, remission, prediction. Those are pretty powerful words. And those are not things that I even think. I don't know. What about you all? Katie, we haven't heard from you in a while. <laughs> I was just thinking, I've had a few people who don't have any of these diseases, but they'll ask about like prevention. Like, is there any way I can get screened or get tested? And I haven't been aware of pretty much anything in the past. I know, you know, there's the genetic factor, environmental factors, but I haven't been aware of anything like blood testing. And I think I caught a bit of that where the doctor said something as far as, markers in your blood. And I'm like, oh, you know, you can actually maybe prevent or or get ahead of it even before you have any kind of signs or symptoms. So I thought that was very sort of hopeful. And, and you know, I want to see where that goes. Well, that's a great answer because and we didn't even plan that. But that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to talk about next. <laughs> so as, as Patrice mentioned, they really talked a lot about this genetic plus environmental. And that really, when you, I just want to also preface this, our organization covers autoimmune and autoinflammatory diseases. Those are different diseases. Those are different parts of the immune system. One is innate, mean born with it. It's, it's highly dependent on different, sometimes genetic mutations. It's just, but it's both sides of the immune system. And then autoimmune is the other side. That's the adaptive. And again, we could link to more information. We have a whole podcast on that as well. <laughs> and um, and the, the difference is the autoimmune needs to have the environmental trigger. The autoinflammatory can, but it's often unknown why it triggers. So in saying that, this was a really interesting one for autoimmune diseases in particular. So I wanted to preface that also since we cover Stills disease and some other diseases that are autoinflammatory, but do have autoimmune property as well. So they talked about basically you can't can't do anything about your genetics it is what it is, but you can do something about an environment, and that's where they cross this. They sort of cross this this information between prevention and maintaining or helping to manage your disease. And again, just going to mention, we can go into more information. You can also email us or message us about, oh, I want to learn more about that. Let us know. This is just a debrief. (laughs) So just giving you an overview. We'll we'll cover more at another time. But essentially, we know that that genetics play a a role. And a lot of, it's called the HLA gene, has been shown in a lot of the research. They look in those biomarkers. They look at the blood 
Um, and that kind of falls into this whole precision medicine and understanding how treatments can be, be developed based on targeting those genetics. But if we know now that, what were some of them? You said smoking, soda, or really high sugar, salt. There were, what were the other ones? Oh, you said gum disease. Oh, yes. Yes. Gum disease, gingivitis. So there is a definite proven research link between mouth decay and an onset. The Oh, the big one, gut bacteria. Uh, so those, these are things that we know, but those are the things now they know are risk factors. So what that tells us, Katie, when you're thinking of prevention, too late for us, <laughs> but, and, and of course, it's, you can't say you would necessarily prevent this. It's too early to say that. But what they're saying is we know, for example, smoking is a huge trigger and, and not only trigger, but we've seen research and most of these conventions we've been at that shows that outcomes are worse in people who smoke. Outcomes are worse in people who are using these certain environmental triggers. And so when we look at this, knowing that if I had a child and they were genetically predisposed to these diseases, then it would be even more important to be like, please don't smoke, please don't smoke, please don't smoke, <laughs> you know, or, or to help with the, a healthier diet or, or things of that nature. What do you all think about about that. Any, any thoughts? I was going to say secondhand smoke too. Sometimes you can't prevent that. If someone's smoking around you and I think, I'm going to say they can't passive smoke. And I, I think I've heard at one point the term thirdhand smoke or something where the residue even gets on places. My mind goes to that as far as, you know, there's only so much you can control about your own environment. Yeah, that's true. It's a good point. It's a really good point. And actually, I, I remember sitting in the car when my parents would smoke and the film on the car windows and things like that. I, I mean, back in the day, I mean, it, it's all around you. You know, speaking to the diet, I think there's so many people that are wrapping their arms around the diet because that's something you definitely have control over. And mm -hmm. again, you don't have necessarily 100% control over your microbiome, which is your gut and your gut bacteria. But w once you kind of figure out a little bit about it, there are things you can do for it. Right. Absolutely. So I think that is something that folks are embracing much more and people want to know more about it. And there's so much research happening out there on the microbiome and all the different bugs in your gut. <laughs> right. And so now, as so now they're, they're saying, you know, Hey, if you, if you know, and if we can start identifying more genes yes. and we know the genes that typically trigger disease plus, you know, family history or so now we're getting somewhere and that that's kind of, ex that's really exciting. It's not kind of exciting. I love that. It's really exciting. <laughs> yeah. And then you tie in the remission and it's like mind blown. So uh, the other, I'll just quickly mention a couple of the others preventative specifically Breastfeeding, thought that was interesting. We'll have to um, reach out to our uh, Mariah, yeah. our friend Mariah uh, Leach at uh, Mama's Facing Forward and ask her about a little bit more information about that. The Mediterranean diet they use yes. specifically. I was a big fan. They kept, they put up a big picture of red wine and they also said beer. So, okay. Um, some studies saying that they could have anti-inflammatory effects, vitamin D. I think we, we uh, mm -hmm. many of us have heard of vitamin D deficiency being a factor. And then they mentioned comorbidity. So you're just going to hear this over and over, I think, in our in our debrief today, because it's the thing. It, it is really everywhere that inflammation as an umbrella. And I and I do want to take this opportunity to say the difference. So that and one of the it was in this actual presentation that the gentleman gave us the, the definition of and there, there was a slide associated and said that comorbidity is when the disease is in the center. So it is thought that the disease triggered something else. So that would be comorbidity. But multimorbidity is when it's the patient-centered. So it could um, be stemming from something else attributed to the patient. And, and they talked about like depression being one of those, for example. It's kind of a, a differentiating the cause and effect 
saying that maybe it's, you know, it's, it's coming from the center of the patient. So that I've seen that word come up many times. Hey too. Tiff, do you think that they're talking about with multimorbidity? Cause I, I, we believe that a surgery caused the trigger of my rheumatoid arthritis. Do you think that is talking about the same thing or am I misconstruing that? Well, let's pull up the slide. Well, you all can't see the slide, unfortunately, but I'm going to look at the slide. Awesome. <laughs> Um, so on the, well, on the slide, it doesn't go into that many of the environmental, but it does have the patient in the middle and talking, it talks about being able to have, like, like if you had rheumatoid arthritis, for example, that could lead to cardiovascular disease, but you also as a patient could have cardiovascular disease on your own. It may not be because you have okay. RA. It may, you know, so I, I believe that, um, I don't know that that would be it, a it doesn't sound like as it. much as a cause, a, a causation or cause an, a cause and Correct. effect. Okay. That's how I'm right? assuming, uh, interpreting yeah. that. Um, because again, the whole cardiovascular thing just, yeah. That's a big thing yes. too. That started, um, last year we started seeing a mm -hmm. lot of that as well. Um, but no, that it was a, it was it was interesting, and like I said, they talked a lot about the the comorbidities, and you know that this is that inflammation, and that patients and and the their early disease should understand all of the different things that can happen. Again, I I'm a beyond I love you, Al, but I didn't know that. But then again, <laughs> he was to his to his his defense, he only got me a few years ago. <laughs> So I don't, did you, anybody, did any of your doctors talk to you all about this kind of stuff? I'm seeing a lot of head shakings. No. <laughs> Actually, mine does. Again, I've only had her for probably six years now out of my whole span because I fired a few. Um, but <laughs> exactly. I think, and I think I even saw Leslie shake her head. Um, yeah, but she's actually really into research and science. So she does bring, and she also knows my connection to AI arthritis and she brings things up specifically to me and knowing my background, um, with science and stuff. Katie. I think it's the day I was, my rheumatologist mentioned uveitis and I just, you know, I was in middle school. I had no idea. Like, why are you talking about my eyes? Like, what does that have to do with anything? So now I understand it. At the time, it just kind of freaked me out. Mm -hmm. um, but that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> it's nice, though, that they're starting to put things like this at these conferences, too, because it was under the sessions to sort of train and teach. So that was that was interesting. And then that leads us to the, the second one. We won't spend as much as much time on that on this one, but I thought it was interesting. It was good to mention, which is the influence of physical activity on, on sports and inflammation. How many of you all currently exercise regularly? I do. Are you going to consider what is walking exercise? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Then yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm terrible right now. I, I did get a gym membership and, and, uh, I've got to get back in that, but I know Katie and I started a gym membership about the same oh. week. So well, this, the statistics here, this was interesting because I, I wish I could show it. I, you know, we'll have to get a link or something to it. But the, the presentation started off with one slide of these people like jumping, these women jumping really hard, really fit. And they're jumping on these mini trampolines and it looks like they're, you know, really aggressive and getting it. And, um, and, and then the next one is of a, an older female with a walking cane. And it was like, this is what you get when you Google search, you know, exercise. And this is what you get. The other one was when you research exercise for rheumatic diseases. And I was like, oh, that's not okay. Um, but it, but it's true. And the, the question they posed was, why? You know, are, are patients scared? What do you all think? I know, I know my opinions, but I, I want to hear you. I mean, what do you think of exercise? Are you worried about doing too much and having it hurt you more? Or what are your thoughts? Well, I walk four to five miles every morning and then three times a week I lift weights. They're about five pounds to get my upper body uh, because, you know, walking, that's, that's your lower body. I feel better after I have taken my walk. I do, although AI arthritis does not cover osteoarthritis, I do have that as well in about 75% of my body. And so first thing, you know, you get up in the morning and it's, it's hard just even, you know, getting out of bed and just grabbing my robe out of the closet. But by the time I'm 
out the door and on my walk, by the time I get back home, I feel better, even when I'm in a lot of pain. So for me, the walking is key. In the summertime, I add in swimming because, well, I've been a water baby since I've been a toddler because you're not, there's no weight bearing. So you can't really get hurt with the swimming. And of course, you know, if you're going to be Michael Phelps and train eight hours a day, yeah. But, um, (laughs) you know, just one hour a day or even the aqua aerobics or water aerobics, at least you're moving your body parts. So they presented a bunch of studies. And and again, I'm just going to highlight a couple. And then I want to go into one in particular, a little bit more detail. In Italy... 90% of persons living with rheumatic diseases are inactive, meaning they do less than two physical activities per week. And in the U.S., I couldn't tell because the chart, it wasn't specific. It kind of had a line. It looked like it was around 70%. But there is, I think Finland was was the most active. I think only, it was only like 40% were inactive. But they did studies with these people showing that, you know, lack of exercise, you've got higher inflammation rates, pain, fatigue, all of that is higher. So the question went back to, well, why aren't patients exercising then? If if there is research that's showing this, well, maybe some of them are afraid with intense exercise, not water, not walking, more intense, high impact that, that could, you know, be more... I guess, aggressive on your, on your working out, would that damage me long-term? And it's funny because I had that same issue. When I first got diagnosed, I kickboxed and I never did it ever since then. I was so scared that if I punched too hard, you know, that I, that I'd hurt myself. And I, and I, and this study followed people for, oh, and I'm sorry, I don't have the amount of time that uh, up here. Oh, two years. Yes, I do. I'm bad. Uh, 136 participants, they put on high intensity weight bearing exercises and uh, they did not have any more damage in their or progressive disease than the 145 in the control group. Interesting. That's really interesting. Tiff, you and I both watched the fatigue thing. And one of the specific focuses on the fatigue part was the lack of motivation. It all ties in. I really, it does. Yeah, it really does. I, you know, we've talked about this before in passing, just in, you know, whether it's on our show or it's just, you know, we're all, we all know each other on these communities. That's how we've connected. (laughs) And, you know, there's conversations all the time about, oh, I just wish I could. Just like I said, I just joined the gym. You know, I really think that support and cheering each other on and being able to share, like, I went to the Huge. You know? That's huge. <laughs> have, you need to be accountable to I somebody. I think I've even done that to Katie. Like, I went and texted her. I went, where's where I'm at? I'm at the gym. You know, just, <laughs> and it's just because it makes you, you know, you, you just, and then that one person just going, way to go. You know, I just think we need to do more of that. Uh, with each other. There's always a lot of talk about treatments. Leslie, you were nodding your head when I said being held accountable. Do you, do you find the same thing? I do. I mean, I think, you know, the pandemic has, has kind of changed the way we do things. And, but I used to kickbox and I used to do other things. And I think, I think sometimes it is like a mind over matter thing. Like, is this hurt me? Is this going to make me feel worse? And so I think to have that, that encouragement, and especially if it is someone else that that has a similar illness, I, I think that it's super helpful. I agree. Yeah. They, this gentleman talked about lack of education and information that is out there for people with these diseases Yes, um, about exercise. <laughs> I mean, you can go on Google and say, how do I exercise with my arthritis? And it would bring up thousands of different pages. But well, and the example in the beginning with the woman walking with a walking stick. I mean, yeah. So how do you know what's a re- reliable resource? Mm-hmm. Deb knows the story, but I really hurt myself. And I think we all have to also somehow be cognizant of what our specific disease is because I have spondyloarthritis, which is of the spine. And I was so worried about my hand hurting my hands by batting, by going to a batting cage. And I didn't even think about the twisting motion. I was in bed for days and I had a flare that was the worst flare I had since before medication. And I went to the, went to the gym. (laughs) 
few yeah. weeks ago <laughs> and I wanted to lose weight in my stomach. And so what do I do? I'm doing twists. And it was that. And after that, I was, again, couldn't go to the gym for like a week. And it was, it took me that to realize some, you got to know what could cause your specific disease to flare as well. So keep in mind that the information is generalized, you know, and you got to think like if you do have RA and it, your hands are greatly affected, I personally would be a little worried about punching, <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, maybe I'd be too. punch someone <laughs> if I, no, I wouldn't punch anyone, but yeah. like, you know, doing a punching bag real hard or something. So, I mean, with it, with a grain of salt impact, but, um, but I know now twisting, uh-uh. <laughs> it's not going to happen. What helped me a lot was um, I had just sort of been at the end of uh, doing physical therapy. And so I went to the gym before my last session and I was able to ask my physical therapist, like, you know, what should I do? What shouldn't I do? Or um, especially my wrists don't really work at all. Um, so do I hold things differently or like barbells or um, like the therabands? Like, how do I do this? in the best way for me, like, how can I just kind of like, you know, a little bit of expert help. And, you know, before that, I would have thought maybe a personal trainer, but that would seem like not exactly approachable because that just seems way out of my league. But physical therapy, they were great working with me and like giving me tips as far as try this, do that, or this maybe isn't necessary for what you're looking for. So it was great. Alternative yeah. motions yeah. and things mm -hmm. like that. I like that. Like, um, I know that yoga, they do alternative or chair yoga and stuff like that. I know one thing in particular for me that I think about is when Thanksgiving is coming up and I usually host Thanksgiving for lots of people. And, um, I know that I, I know what chopping all the vegetables, onions and celery and whatnot. And, um, you know, again, lifting lots of things in a short amount of time, I just know that for a couple of days, I'm going to be down or being out in the garden, you know, doing that kind of work. I just know I'm still going to do it, but there is some modification. You can buy store, cut up vegetables that are celery and onions. I just have a hard time spending the money, which again is mind over matter. And that's stupid because again, I could be so protected and I'm also really particular. My mom comes sometimes to help and she'll cut the onion and the celery too big in, for me. And I'll be going back and reach. It's stupid. It's like, I just got to <laughs> let go. <laughs> let her, let, let the celery go. Deb, <laughs> do it. Yes, exactly. <laughs> just, just don't look at it and just throw it in the, you know, in the bowl when it's done. Oh my goodness. Well, you know, that is so, so anyway, that that's what we'll, we'll leave it on there. There's a, again, debriefing. We're just kind of giving you the information that's out there, but really how is it relevant for us people living with these diseases? So we'll, mm -hmm. we'll expand these conversations. We can do it on social media, you know, get, get more of your thoughts on there, but let's jump to a session that goes more into the remission. And that's one that I know, Leslie, you and you and Deb did it with treating, treating lupus to target. Uh, remission mm -hmm. or low disease activity. So who wants to start? I can start. My, the session that I did, it, it was raising a question. It was, is remission achievable with today's drugs? And it was really interesting. The overall question was yes, but, you know, which is interesting. It, it just talked about the recent studies, and there were a lot of slides with studies and talked about in recent studies, over 50% of patients are able to achieve at least one remission state during their follow-up visits. One other study also talked about for folks that have had lupus for a long time, they're saying that long-term remission is very rare. I'm just kind of hitting some highlights. And they talked about it's called LLDAS, which is lupus low disease activity scores. And they were just talking about how to achieve that. And also, you know, the, the difference between remission on meds and remission off meds. So Leslie, do you want to make any comments related to that specifically? Yeah. So I think that this is super interesting because you don't hear this. I think as patients that live with the illness, we know I have come to the acceptance that I am medication dependent. 
that I may be in remission clinically, but I will never be off medication if I want to stay in remission. And so they said that remission off treatment, like really isn't even a useful definition because it's so rare. And they said in less than 10% of patients. So there's an estimate that 1.5 million people in America have lupus. That means that 150,000 would actually ever go into remission and be totally off treatment. And so I think some people might look at that and say, well, why do we even bother trying? But, you know, I think for one of the earlier speakers in that whole set said, you know, quality of life is not very good. And they even compared it to HIV and Huntington's disease, just in terms of the quality of life score. And so I think that we have to be realistic. And I think that patients, I think sometimes are more realistic than clinicians are. And so for me, I just thought patients know this, but to actually hear doctors say that the likelihood of lupus patients going into remission and being totally off treatment is not very likely. So Deb, I mean, I think you, you hit on that. Yes, but And I don't think people should be discouraged by that. I think people should say, we're building a more realistic picture of this disease and what living with it looks like. 100%. I I agree for sure. In the session I I was at, it talked about predictors of non-remission or longer term to remission. And it was basically about disease activity, therapy, their ethnicity, which also plays into it, or pre-existing organ damage, which I found was interesting, that that could totally affect, you know, that being able to do that. As far as they also talked about obstacles in achieving stable remission, which is the disease flares despite the therapy, persistent active disease, and inability to reduce the glucocorticoids, which are steroids, prednisone, things like that. I have RA and, you know, I'm at six milligrams of prednisone, but I don't see it going really much lower than that. My, my um, rheumatologist keeps bringing that up and wanting to keep tapering, but I flare so badly every time, even half, half a milligram. Uh, It's just, it, it definitely gave a lot of different information, but the yes, but it, it was definitely in a sustained remission, even with having rheumatoid arthritis, I've never had remission on meds. I've never been off meds since I was 13 years old too, but I, I agree with you. I don't think I'll ever get there. But again, you know, I don't think it's um, a reason for folks not to try to achieve it because everybody is different. I, everybody is so individualistic. Patrice, you wanted to add something. I wanted to ask Leslie a question, and if this is too personal, just tell me to butt out, but you, <laughs> you, you have lupus and this, this person that was speaking on this session said that there's the quality of life is poor. I mean, how do you feel about that? I mean, we all live with these diseases. I mean, if we would all choose not to have them, but I feel like I have a pretty good quality of life. So can I ask you how you felt about when he's, when that person said that? To be honest, when I think of HIV and I think of Huntington's disease, and I think when the general public probably hears that, they probably get a very bleak picture, even though I know that, you know, survival rates and living with HIV have greatly improved. I can't say what that was relative to because he didn't say. So I don't know if that means off treatment. You know, I don't know exactly where where that was coming from. So I do think that that is a little bit extreme potentially. And I don't know if that was kind of just to like, you know, grab people in. To reference maybe just to give a whole different category, possibly. And I think, I mean, maybe, maybe if we're talking about with the goal of being in remission and off treatment, because if, if 10%, you know, is that benchmark, then my quality of life would be horrible if, if I was off treatment, but then I also probably wouldn't be in remission. So, I mean, I think that that's a good question and I do think it is extreme, you know, and relative to what, and I, I will say one thing that did impress me, one of the speakers near the end did talk about 
that the majority of their patients are Caucasian and heavily rely on one specific treatment that isn't really used and may not even be have been approved for African-Americans, which we know are disproportionately affected. And that person was from Italy, but I did think that that was, they were kind of talking about health equity and especially where lupus is concerned. You know, we know that there's, there's a lot of issues in terms of the disease disproportionately affects. So I did think that was interesting, but I mean, I would say my quality of life is definitely better than that. And I hope that other patients experience that as well. But I mean, I don't know if if they're referencing that before getting to remission, then I would say, I agree. I mean, my quality of life has definitely improved now that my diseases are more stable. Yeah, that's, thank you for sharing that. And I think a lot, I think a lot of people can also understand and and relate to that. And I just wanted to, I was writing, I, I do that. I was writing a lot of notes and uh, you know, there's so many, so many words used with remission, clinical remission, stable remission. Like it was, you, you yes. mentioned several different in that, that, I mean, that's a discussion all, you know, and a, a whole, a whole other thing of in what it means to a patient versus the clinical. And mm-hmm. so when we talk about it, it certainly does lead to more questions. I had one and, and I'm sorry if I put you on the, on the spot, <laughs> I just happened to pull up one slide and I wanted to ask. So if you don't know or you don't remember, totally cool. But it said, is lupus remission an achievable goal in 2021? And then there's a yes. And then it says in recent studies, over 50% of patients are able to achieve at least one remission state. And that's where my question came in. What does that even mean? Is that clinical? Is that stable? Is that patient interpreted, but I don't know what it means, at least one remission state during their follow-up visits. So I, in my opinion, I am assuming that is clinical because again, this was a doctor putting this together and she had many studies that she linked as well. So again, I I found it very interesting too, uh, to Leslie's point about a doctor's perspective of remission Mm -hmm. and patient's their thoughts as well, far as what remission plus is. The, the other mm-hmm. information that, that um, Leslie was talking about at the beginning said 10%, you know, are likely in their lifetime. So I just, I, I'm sure it's just a good example of, we, I don't have enough information to look at that. Cause I could look at that as a person living with the diseases and go, wow, 50% of lupus patients can go into remission. Yeah. And Woo! in 2021, <laughs> wow, you know, but there is something behind that because it doesn't match the statistic of, you know, 10%. So it, it goes, you'll hear us when we talk about research, there, there's baselines, there's who was in that study? Like, are these, are they talking about people who only had the disease for two years? Are they talking about people like Leslie who've been living with, like, there's co there's, there's cofactors that are involved mm-hmm. that we can't see by looking at a slide. And that's why it worries. That's why I prefer to do these debriefs via video, than always just share a snapshot on social media without context. Right. Right. And actually, you know, several of the slides, several of the slides were talking about different, you know, methods that were used. The, the LDAS, low disease mm-hmm. activity scores, the lupus, low disease activity scores. So again, different models that are being used. Yeah. That's going to so, come up. That's, and that, that's, that's mm-hmm. going to come up in some of our other conversations in our, in our future debriefs as well. I guarantee mm-hmm. it. Anything else, any major points from that, that, that weren't covered? Again, the one thing that stood out to me was, you know, predictors to that would actually take into consideration the disease activity and the type of manifestations, the therapy, ethnicity, because again, there's nothing you can do about that. Nothing. So, and then the pre-existing organ damage. So those were all things that could kind of stand in the way of it. And I think for me, just the distinction they made between steroid usage, and they had a very specific benchmark of if you're in stable disease activity, you will be on, I think they said 7.5 milligrams or less. And once you're above that, you would no longer be considered stable, but they did not provide any benchmark for Mm -hmm. immunosuppressive or biologic medication. So I thought that was really interesting because I don't know if there will be more to come on that or if that's just how how it's day, but I found that distinction very interesting. When we get these slides, I always try to write down, they'll, they'll quote the, the research 
um, the journal number or what have you, because I always want to go back because there are more questions. They, the, the speaker can only say so much. And I want to look at the inclusion. I want to see, you know, how, what were, what was the baseline? What did the, the study sample, how long have they been on treatments? Are they naive to treatments or, you know, all of those things matter when you're quoting yeah. statistics on remission. So um, really, really interesting. I, I didn't see it, but I guarantee you I'm going to go back and watch it. <laughs> it's, it's, there really there was, yeah, there was one that I'm looking at right now. It is the, one of the slides. It was the treatment goals in lupus. And it talked about mild, moderate, and severe with like, it has little asterisks next to it. And it was talking, it gives underneath basically what that, what each one of them means, but mild is symptoms, mild arthritis, rash, less than 9%. And it talks about certain medications and manifestations. It's just really interesting. And then underneath that, it goes into the typical medications that are used, grade A, grade B, grade C, and grade D. It's just another and it talks about what the target is. The target is no steroids at all, which for remission, which well, again, yeah. hello. Well, for, for lupus in particular, that's, yes. that's a big one because that's, right. that's more often used. Right. I get that. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see the biologics are more into the, the higher grades, C and D, and uh, methotrexates earlier on glucocorticoids with also the hydrochloroquine. I always say that wrong. <laughs> we all have, we all have those words. We all, we all have yeah. them. Um, yeah. interesting. Well, it sounds like a great session, but definitely it was um, need, need to go back. So in the interest of time, uh, we yes. are actually, we were going to go into a big old conversation about fatigue, but we're going to, we're going to put that off and, and let you all come back for that one because wow, that was a good one. Dove and I were both like, oh, it was just really good. So you have to come back to our next debrief and we'll, we'll talk about the fatigue session because we were already worried we would be over 15 minutes just in that. It was a, it was just a lot. It was all about just a lot about research and what we're, they're doing in with fatigue and how, with the percentage of patients and it seems a little low to me. And so, yeah, we're going to have to talk. We got to talk about that one. <laughs> so we have like lots of conversation points that we'd like to hit on that. So, so come back, come back to our next debrief on that, but we're going to kind of close out on just some bullet points of the other things that we saw. And one of them, I went to a session, multidisciplinary patient care, the new era of rheumatology, and wanted to just briefly mention that because we set a theme is this collaboration. It's also about multidisciplinary care. A lot of talk about that. There's been talk about that for, I mean, a decade, but to see it really coming to the forefront and with the collaboration, I mean, I have to ask, I don't know if it's driven by COVID and the need to think differently, whatever it is, glad to see it. One of the things that I did just want to ask come from that, there's one I wanted to ask all of you. So they were talking about the need to have different doctors treat different things. How many do you all have? Like I have a dermatologist, a gastroenterologist, that kind of thing. Like five, four, ten, seven or eight. Okay. Leslie with four. Four. So this is just the specialist? Yeah. One. Okay. Do they all work together? Do they talk? No. No. I'm seeing a lot of no, everyone shaking their head. Deb, you're the only one who didn't shake their head. No. So yours do work together? Yeah, because again, I live in Wisconsin and it's the UW system. So again, everybody's sharing notes with each other. And before my foot surgery, I ended up, my rheumatologist was in, they talked, my primary care doctor, they talked with the foot surgeon. Again, they do it as a team approach. So mm -hmm. um, better than it's ever been done yeah. before for me. I'm lucky, Al. Got to give him the two thumbs up on that one. But I, most of my doctors are within the WashU, the Washington University um, network. So they mm -hmm. all kind of know each other, which makes it helpful as well. The last thing I wanted to ask about that, they there was a there was a session in this talking again about comorbidities. Surprise, surprise. Um, but this one in particular talked about difficult to treat. And they said it was RA, difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. And there was a slide and it basically defined difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis as failing two or more treatments 
that had different mechanisms of action. So that would be like a TNF, you know, inhibitor versus a jack inhibitor, that that kind of thing. But I thought that was kind of low. What was for, the percentage? Being it wasn't a percentage, oh. it was a definition oh. of difficult to treat. You need to fail two or more treatments of different mechanisms wow. of action. I mean, I feel I feel that. Then aren't that we all long, difficult? To- yeah, I feel yeah. that a long time ago. <laughs> I yeah. guess I'm difficult to treat. Like I just yeah. I, so I just wanted to throw that out there. Interesting. I, I just thought that was a really interesting definition, and I'm going to revisit it. But yeah, that that was in there, and they they were using it as an example of why you need to have more more specialties because of these comorbidities, and comorbidities lead to difficult to treat, and so it all kind of intertwines. Last but not least, we did go to the UR recommendations. Some of us did. I Mm -hmm. did not. Mm -hmm. But Deb, did you want to mention anything from there? I think you had. One session in particular is a friend of ours, Oralee Nam. We've done lots of things with her. And shout out to Oralee. Shout out. I was texting with her today. (laughs) Yeah. So her, her focus is synovial tissue. And Tiff, do you want to say what our partnership is with the Synovial? Sure, sure. Just very briefly, we have a whole other episode I think that you can find on on our list called Changing the World with Your Knee. And I met Orally at OMARAC, which is Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. I've been a patient research partner with them for several years, and um, I was sitting in for them and ended up getting invited on the team for the synovial tissue team. And then she also does this work through UR specifically. And then I, I said, well, Deb actually has had a knee biopsy, which is part of it. So I said, I have somebody to bring on the team and there you go. So we've actually been working with Oralee and the team doing a little bit of focus group research on biopsies. If you would like to get a biopsy, if you didn't have to get a biopsy. So that's a great episode to check out. And, um, and if you wanted to, to learn more about how to get involved with that, we certainly can provide that information as well. But we've been following all that she's doing. So you said she's got some recommendations that she, that she put out there. Yeah. So she, she's looking for ULAR to consider some minimal reporting requirements for the biopsies and things like that in clinical practice. So in research of rheumatology as well. And just again, basically patient recruiting, which is kind of what we were involved with, the biopsy Mm -hmm. procedure, tissue sampling, the methods of reporting. And there's a lot of discrepancies as far as the types of biopsies, because there's ultrasound and other needle aspirations and things like that. So just looking for better guidelines. And she got into quite a bit of details as far as, you know, points to consider. I think there were 14. (laughs) Okay. Well, yeah. Love you, Orly, (laughs) but we're not, we're not reviewing that. But it was want to give you a shout out because we saw you in the, we saw you in the recommendations. And it was awesome. She did a great And I know they had, they had COVID ones. We're going to, we're going to circle back to that on a different debrief because there was a lot of COVID stuff and it's better just to group it together. Now, Katie, you had mentioned that you saw something there. Yeah. I think we were going to mention the Stein award winner. Sure. Yeah. My first time at Euler, so I wasn't really aware of what kind of awards that they give out, but apparently they have a winner for a patient essay every year. And this was how digital solutions benefit my life as a person with RMD. And I think Deb knows a little bit more. I only saw like a highlight of the essay, but it seems like a silver lining of COVID as far as being more inclusive, being able to do things virtually. And I think, I know, I I think I've heard people here say that even with ULAR, being able to watch things not live is so helpful. And so that kind of inclusion hopefully will stick around for much longer than the actual pandemic. The one other thing, definitely, um, as far as what Katie said, but the one thing that I wanted to point out was, again, this is a patient essay. It is not a doctor or nurse or anybody else that are part of that. And this is given out by Pare and the recipient. So she's from Denmark. And the one other thing, as far as that goes, is that she wasn't even able to even do a little video because she was in the hospital and flaring that bad. So the person that was kind of accepting on her behalf was just saying she's super thrilled to have been chosen for that. Again, it just shows the real life reality of what our diseases can be and even preventing her from even 
accepting and being part of a little snippet. So yeah, I, I just thought that was super promising to see again, patients brought into the award-winning part. Mm-hmm. And I probably should, probably should have said this earlier. I think we've said ULAR PARE before, but that's people with arthritis and rheumatism in Europe. That's what it stands for. That is that third pillar that we were talking about of, of ULAR. So it's, it's PARE. And then I'll go through it in a little bit in, in a different debrief because it's not the first time I've seen it here, but macrophage activation syndrome or MAS or MAS. Some people may have started seeing this for the first time during COVID. It, 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 there was a buzz around it because they were seeing that type of reaction in severe COVID cases. So I did see that there was some ULAR and ACR, which I liked. That was a combination mm-hmm. um, for the early management of that. Uh, so going to look back into that because there's other sessions that mention it as well. So stay tuned for that as well. And I think that's the one it. other thing I was going to say oh, is the sh- one second <laughs> is the um, shout out to Jeffrey Sparks oh, for his right. abstract award. It was, I mean, go ahead and t- describe what his relationship is, Tiff, but he's one of our friends as well. Yes, he has been on the show as well. We have a breakout show called Roomy Rounds, and it is having patients, people living with our diseases, and rheumatology professionals come to the table as equals, and together we have heart-to-heart conversations to solve problems that will improve communication and the rheumatology community. My doctor, Dr. Al, he was heading that up with me and he introduced us to Jeff and we did one on vaccinations and COVID and then Vivica, Vivica Strand, who I know from Omeract and Shared Decision Making Group also joined that one. So we can link to that as well. But big holla to Jeff, good guy and all the work he's doing with the COVID-19 rheumatology group is fantastic. So, all right. Yeah. He got the clinical science award, one of six from this year as well. So a global rheumatology Alliance, sorry, the the GRA. So (laughs) the COVID-19 global rheumatology Alliance. So that is, so um, that that's what that's from. All right. Well, I think that we wrapped it up. We did go nine minutes over, but Hey, you know, that's not too bad. Also, for those who are listening to the audio version of this for our show, that you will have be able to access the full uncut version. But those of you who are watching it on YouTube, you can watch the full version or they do get a little bit long. So we have our wonderful producers, Ryan and Bill. Ryan's lurking in the back somewhere. I'll probably do a little like peek out when he hears his name. Um, but they... <laughs> Or he's not listening at all. I don't know. He He just doesn't want to peek out. He just said, oh, I'm done. He fell asleep like 20 (laughs) minutes ago. There he is. No. There he is. (laughs) So we we have Ryan and Bill who have been doing a great job of going in and editing segments. So, you know, you can watch the full version or you can go in and say, no, I only want to learn about the lupus. I only want to learn about, you know, um, this this segment. So they're doing a great job of doing that as well and, and started with the ones we did last year. But you can watch all of them from last year too on our YouTube channel. And you can find um, the link to that on our website at AIarthritis.org. You can also listen to any of our talk show episodes at AIarthritis.org backslash talk show. And we're almost up to a hundred, which what? crazy. I, know. <laughs> I can't believe it. How fast um, that happened. I know. And so you could go ahead and check those out. And you could also find us on our social media channels at IF. AI arthritis. Give us a holla. Let us know what you think or if you have any questions about what we've talked about today. And if you're interested in going with us and learning more about these opportunities to go with us to conferences, um, I'm going to I'm gonna have you email Katie. She's like, what? I did it. <laughs> so email Katie. And it's Katie at AIarthritis.org. And go ahead and just K-A-T-I-E at AIarthritis.org and just put go to conferences in the subject line so that she knows to get back to you ASAP. And if you're on the site, go ahead and click that big old donate button because that's how we keep the show alive. And all of the other work we do, like going to conferences, cannot do it without your generous support. But lastly, I cannot wrap up the show without thanking everybody here that has joined today. So 
Deb and Patrice and Katie and Leslie. Thank you so much. And I wanted to give Leslie an opportunity as one of our guests going with us and a, a wonderful blogger and patient advocate to let everyone know where they can find you. Thank you. So my blog is gettingclosertomyself.blogspot.com. So you can find me there as well as on social media, but I will be sharing about ULAR on my blog coming up. So wonderful. Thank you. And so there we go. We are wrapping this up. And as always, just remember as an organization, our goal is to bring all voices to the table. So whether you are a person living with the diseases or another stakeholder, your voice matters because only together can we solve the problems of tomorrow. So it's your turn. Pull up a seat and join the conversation. And thank you all for joining us today. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis. Find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. Thank you.